It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I wanted to protect my family from being part, from being part of the political and media scrutiny associated with this, something I believe any parent would want to do. I am a father first and foremost. I can see now that it's just not possible to explain the data usage without explaining their role. Sign officer, the simple truth is they were watching football matches. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. We're recording on Wednesday the 22nd of November. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you for finding us. And of course, also on the pod, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Good morning, and let me apologise in advance for having a bad cold today, which has made me rather grumpy. So we'll see how that plays out. (laughs) Okay, well, that bodes well for the rest of us. Uh, Good luck, everyone. Uh, oh. How many excuses has Jeff had over the last six months for being grumpy? It's like it's just—it's a never-ending list of reasons for. Be- maybe he's just grumpy. Maybe maybe it's because of my two co-hosts. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to my favourite co-host, Andy McKeever, former director of communications to the Scot. Uh, I knew it to the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. <laughs> Uh, good morning. And you know, Callum, that Jeff and I like to destroy or sabotage your segues. So yes. in that spirit, let me just say that I'm coming to you today from the Corbyn stronghold, the Democratic People's Republic of Edinburgh South. Edinburgh. Segue. Edinburgh South. Uh, which, at which point we should say hello to our guest uh, on, the, on the podcast this week. Honestly, why do I even bother? It is Ian Murray, uh, MP, Labour MP for Edinburgh South. Ian, hello, welcome to the podcast. Morning. Great to be on and, and great to see you on. If I could just add to the the general rinsing of Jeff, I've not actually ever seen him happy. So I hope the, I hope the cold doesn't make him even more miserable than normal. <laughs> this is going to be fun. Yeah. Good, good, good. Uh, thanks very much, Ian, for being here. The People's Republic of Edinburgh South is how McKeever's just described it. How do you feel about that description? 
Demo- did I not say democratic people? Oh, you sorry. have to say democratic if you really want to get the proper oomph. Democratic people's yeah. Republic of Edinburgh South. Of I mean, there's a little, there's a little former police box just out, right on the very edge of the constituency on the corner of Burntfield Links, and I always wanted to buy that little police box. I think it's a coffee shop now, and put a little barrier at it and just only let people in if they're properly passported and properly voting the right way. <laughs> Jeff, you had similar plans to that back in 2014, didn't you? <laughs> That was basically <laughs> the essence of what we were trying to achieve, yes. Uh, right. Uh, let's get stuck in, shall we? Um, Andy, I want to ask you, first of all, how your week has been. Um, last week on the podcast, we were talking about Michael Matheson's iPad. Uh, and I suppose the controversy at that point that it had caused, but let's, let's just bear in mind this, we recorded our podcast, published the podcast indeed, before he gave his clarifying statement on the iPad data usage and all of that, and finally admitted that actually his sons had been watching football on the iPad while on holiday in Morocco, racking up an £11,000 bill for data roaming. Um, so Andy, I mean, we, we put out a clip, there was a huge response to it, of you kind of talking about the issue. I mean, you were on telly, you were in the papers, talking about it as well. Um, a week on, I mean, how do you reflect, first of all, on that? And where have you kind of got to in your own considerations on the Matheson saga? Um, I've had a fine week, thanks. Yeah, not bad. I've had um, I've had a, a, a healthy amount of criticism from lots of people on Twitter who have no name and no face and who think that all SNP members should be hung for treason. Um, and if you put that to a side, I've also had quite a lot of healthy debate about this, uh, including on TV and on radio. Um, I My position is, I suppose, relatively simple on this. I've got quite a lot of experience of the last 20 years of when we get rid of politicians for a variety of reasons. And I was in I was in David McCletchie's living room almost exactly 18 years ago when he eventually decided that he couldn't go on any longer and he was going to have to resign over his taxi expenses. And I now have SNP and Labour people tripping over me to tell me how it wasn't really that big a deal and how he shouldn't have gone. Um, And of course, the reason he went is because they put the boot in every single day and they tried to get a scalp, just as he himself, David McCletchie himself, had done to Henry McLeish only a few years earlier. Uh, David was instrumental in the removal of Henry McLeish. And so I suppose my threshold for these things is maybe just a little bit different to what everybody else's is. I'm not arguing that Michael Matheson hasn't done anything wrong, just as I wouldn't argue that David McCletchie and Henry McLeish didn't do anything wrong. But my threshold is a little bit different. And I I think that taking responsibility and accountability for doing something wrong doesn't always have to result in what is quite a lot of upheaval um, in getting rid of whether it be a leader or a cabinet secretary or whatever, um, for, to be honest, very little gain. So I have no issue with people who say, you know, he's got to go, he lied, it was public funds, all of that stuff. Perfectly valid opinion. Personally, my threshold just hasn't been met. And I also think, as a taxpayer, I'm appalled at the way the Scottish Parliament has allowed this to happen. That was a very small amount of data which you could get at Margie Otters over the road from me for a tenner, uh, and it cost £11,000. And that is an absolute disgrace. Now, we won't end up talking about that because this is about the politician, but I think there's enough nuance here, um, there's enough debate to be had here, that in my opinion, I am content as a citizen and as a taxpayer for him not to go. 
Fine. And, and I think what you say about the Parliament is notable. I mean, nobody should be paying £11,000 for six gigabytes of data in 2023. That is fundamentally ludicrous. Um, anyone who debates that is a moron. But let's consider your threshold point as well. So you were comparing to incidents of years ago. Has the threshold changed? Are we, in 2023, are you demonstrating that we are more willing to put up with lower standards now than we were years ago? Um. <sighs> I suppose in one sense, the threshold has changed in that um, McLeish and McCletchy were both pre-Westminster expenses scandals. They were both pre-moats and all of that sort of thing. Um, and I think that their situation now may not merit the same level of press scrutiny um, as the one that we have just now. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if the outcomes are any different to what they were before. And I should mention as well, because I have had this discussion with a couple of journalists through the week. I'm not blaming, I don't blame the media for this. I never blame the media for this. And I never blame the media for what happened to McCletchy either. I think the media is doing its job. I think it's doing exactly what it is supposed to do. I blame for this, the political environment. That's what I blame. This week in the Scottish Parliament, we discussed Michael Matheson's iPad, and we discussed Gaza, right? Two ends of the spectrum here. What we didn't discuss in the Scottish Parliament is the NHS or education or the economy. And a lot of that is why I have a problem with this. We've got massive problems in this country, and I think we look for any excuse not to talk about them. Jeff, what would you be, what, what is your advice? What would be your advice at this point if you were there, if you were in government? We've had the initial scandal that dragged on for days. We've had Michael Matheson's supposedly clarifying statement. We've had him still hounded by journalists in a very positive and holding to account manner saying, well, Michael Matheson, it looks like you've misled us. It actually looks like you've lied. What would you be advising now? Yeah, well, as you rightly pointed out earlier on, the you know when we broadcast last week, uh, we hadn't had his clarifying statement uh, in terms of the situation. But sadly, that clarifying statement um, has just led to more questions. To to the extent that I read a, a press headline today that Michael Matheson did not lie despite not telling the truth. We've had uh, Hamza Yusuf and uh, Shona Robeson apparently uh, allegedly not appearing on the uh, BBC News programmes at the weekend uh, because they were you know, worried about they were going to get asked about this. We had Keith Brown on the BBC GMS programme saying he didn't expect to get asked about this because he was there to talk about uh, Gaza. So the political context of this has not been anything other than uh, uh, unhelpful for the SNP. You asked the question what I would have done. Well, what I would have done, I'd have used that statement as a resignation statement um, because uh, if he'd fallen on his sword... If he'd uh, said, look, it was uh, a genuine effort to protect my family, but I recognise I've done wrong and I have misled um, or I've not been uh, fully uh, comprehensive uh, with the truth, uh, then I think you know people would have forgotten about it by now, quite frankly. And actually, given that, as I said last week, Michael's a very diligent minister, I suspect he could have been back in government next spring at a reshuffle and nobody would have said boo to a goose. Uh, the result now for the SNP is that, you know, they've kind of lost a bit of moral authority on this. If there's any other situations like this going forward, which there inevitably will be in politics, whether it be at Westminster or Holyrood from the opposition, uh, uh, opponents will quickly turn around and say, well, sorry, your guy uh, misled uh, and didn't lead. Uh, so you know, who are you to speak? Uh, secondly, it's been a huge distraction. Andy rightly points out there's been some important votes 
um, and discussions on the situation in Gaza and Israel. We've got a budget, a UK budget today, and yet all we're talking about is this iPad. Uh, it's also calling into question Hamza's leadership and judgment um, as well. Uh, and finally, I just don't understand if this is, from an SNP perspective, the best use of what little political capital they have uh, just now. Far better, I think, to draw a line under it and move on. As I say, had you know Michael Masson chosen to resign or had Hamza invited him to leave government, I bet you we wouldn't even be talking about this by now. That's the nature of these types of stories. I do agree with Andy on the frivolous nature of these stories, but the S&P have only got themselves to blame, I'm afraid. Uh, a couple of thoughts from you listening as well. Susan emails to say, hi, enjoy listening to the podcast. If your target audience is political obsessive, such as myself, which it surely is, why berate us for taking an interest in what's clearly an important political story, i.e. the Cabinet Secretary for Health's iPad? Uh, having a First Minister who so clearly wants us all to move on also suggests to me that there's a legitimate story here. And I'd have thought a blatant case of lying to the media and therefore public calls for proper scrutiny. It's not unnuanced, unimportant, trivial or pathetically Scottish to follow and comment on this story, says Susan. And absolutely, Susan, I think actually, I'm not sure anybody here would disagree with you. Uh, I note that you sent that on Saturday. So I think that perhaps is, um, you know, notable in terms of it came after the statement and indeed after we were recording as well. Uh, thank you as well to Beth, who says, Michael Matheson is the health secretary. Uh, unless he was personally doing robotic surgery without a Wi-Fi link, £11,000 is insane. £11,000 is not keeping up with your emails and hopping on a few video calls because of some urgent departmental issue. It's an absolutely mad charge. Andy's not wrong. It sounds like the IT setup is woefully inadequate. Uh, but at the time, this was, uh, excuse me, at the time, this was the expected form that MSPs, including cabinet secretaries, would receive notifications uh, and somebody should sort it. Uh, as with all scandals in Scottish government, it's worth imagining the SNP response in a UK context. If Grant Shapps, prior to being shifted from Health Secretary, had failed to respond to multiple notifications, failed to follow existing policy, then tried to charge the taxpayer 11 grand, the SNP would be baying for his blood. Uh, Ian Murray, is there, a, is there an inconsistency in how we address these things between Westminster and Holyrood, do you think, when it comes to sort of these sorts of political scandals? Is there a, a difference in tone, a difference in focus? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think the iPad and the issue of the data is the, the, what, what people are getting at here. I mean, of course, the IT system and whoever's got a SIM card that charges you £11,000 for a, what, eight or nine gigs of data, they've obviously got the wrong IT equipment. And But I think it goes back to the character of the, the health secretary himself and the defence from Hamza Youssef that's, that's become the issue. It's never the issue that, that kills you in politics. It's the cover-up. And the lie, um, and if he had, you know, this bill came in in February of this year, and that bill's landed on his doorstep, and he's looked at that bill and decided to try and find a way of getting the public purse to pay for it, rather than just fessing up and saying, "Look, well, we're on holiday. My kids wanted to watch the old fur game. I set up a hotspot from my iPad. Didn't realise the SIM card was old. Um, sorry, it's come to this. I'll pay it back. I apologise, and it won't happen again. And it would have disappeared." So I think Jeff's right, it would have just gone away. But the the whole charade that we've had since then of cover up, I was used to doing constituency work, I'm blaming everyone else but myself, um, defence from the First Minister, but it was quite clear 48 hours before that, that the, he knew something different. So it's the cover up that gets you. And maybe there is a difference between how we treat people now than we did before. Um, but actually... And this would have gone away had Michael Matheson himself just fessed up that there was a problem and paid the money back. Mm. 
Uh, well, thank you for your emails on that, by the way. It's always good to hear from you. Uh, hello at hollywoodsources.com is the email address uh, to get in touch. Uh, Ian, it's great to have you on the podcast this week. Um, there's lots that we want to talk about, actually. I think we should start with um, with Gaza and with the ceasefire votes that have been held now both in Westminster and at Hollywood. Let's start with Westminster, where the SNP motion on uh, calling for a ceasefire was put forward. Just remind us how you voted on that. Well, I voted for, I abstained on that particular amendment, but voted for the Labour Party amendment to the King's speech. And, and just explain the differences then for our listeners. Why did you not vote for the SNP uh, motion or amendment to the King's speech indeed, uh, but you, uh, you voted for the Labour one? Just explain those nuances. Okay, and let me maybe explain a little bit about the process because the debate we were having last Wednesday was a combination of five days of the debate on the King's speech because obviously the King delivered that the Tuesday before. Parliament then debates that for a number of days and it culminates in votes to either approve or not approve the King's speech come the following Wednesday, which is where we got to on Wednesday. So there was not an actual debate or motion on a ceasefire. This was amendments put forward on the basis of that King's speech debate. So um, the SNP obviously brought their their, uh, amendment to the King's speech. We brought our own amendment, which essentially was broadly similar with the exception that we are looking for long humanitarian pauses as a starting point and as a progress towards any permanent cessation of hostilities. Now, it's easy to say this in hindsight, but but we knew this was the only deal on the table. Um, Both Israel and Hamas had already ruled out a ceasefire. We thought that um, backing that amendment, which the government ultimately would have defeated, which I think people tend to forget as well, um, the government defeated all amendments last Wednesday. They're not going to have their King's speech brought down or amended by an opposition party. That would finish them off completely. Uh, And therefore, what we backed was an amendment, our own amendment, which was our own policy, um, which is broadly similar. Uh, It talked about um, the West Bank, which the SNP motion didn't. It talked about the future uh, peace process to a two-state solution. The SNP motion didn't. it talked about the uh, terrible terrorist attack in Israel with Hamas, which the SNP motion skirted over. And it talked about the fact that what we wanted to do was to try and not let the perfect get in the way of the possible. And that was essentially going for long humanitarian pauses um, with hostages released as the starting point and the foundation towards a much longer lasting peace and process. And you can see what's happened in the last 24 hours. We've now got to that point. Uh, and been welcomed by all sides, uh, including politicians in Palestine themselves. Um, and everyone is now saying, including the UN, uh, America, Qatar, who was the, the key to brokering this, that hopefully this will be the launch pad now for um, talks and trust to be built towards a more lasting uh, peace that we can we can all get behind. So really, I, I think the whole debate in the last week has been very frustrating about backing motions and not what we were doing essentially as a government in waiting is getting to a point that we were backing what was possible rather than what we would uh, think would be the perfect and that was to get humanitarian pauses and hopefully we'll get we'll see some results from that uh, today or tomorrow with the conclusion of the Qatari and US negotiations yeah indeed and it sounds like there's progress on the way on on that front it's that time of the year Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And so then we turn to Holyrood to try to understand why there is such a difference in feeling within parties and indeed within the UK on what the correct language to have used up until this point has been because MSPs uh, backed the motion in the Scottish Parliament by 90 votes to 28, which called for an immediate ceasefire in the conflict. The motion won the support of all parties except the Conservatives who had been calling for humanitarian pauses. How would you explain that apparent rift in the in the Labour Party's kind of direction of travel and choice of language when it comes to what our parliamentarians are calling for? Well, I suppose there's three things to answer that, Cam. The first one is I wrote to um, Stephen Flynn last week before in advance of the vote to say, look, this is the most difficult issue that any of us ever have to deal with. Um, at the same time as being completely and utterly powerless. So there's a real contradiction there as well. Um, and Parliament works best and political parties work best in these kinds of crisis moments, particularly in terms of international crisis, when we work together. Um, and that was just point blankly refused. There was no working together. There was no coming together. I think what happened in the Scottish Parliament last night, and I haven't, I haven't seen all the details of this, but the um, motion was put forward by the SNP, um, the Labour Party put forward an amendment which the SNP agreed to. Um, that amendment strengthened and widened the scope of the motion that was put forward. Uh, and therefore, both parties, including the Greens and the Lib Dems, I think, uh, uh, in the end, uh, came together and said, this motion, whilst not perfect, we will back it because it seems to be a good way forward in terms of, of where to get to. Um, the Conservatives haven't backed it, um, of course, and, and they're perfectly entitled to do that. Um, but I think the difference between Scotland and the rest of the UK is that um, there is no doubt the UK Parliament, and I'm not talking about political parties here, but there's no doubt the UK Parliament has a strong role to play in this. You know, the UK is a member of the uh, permanent member of the Security Council, um, influential in terms of um, channels with sister parties, whether they be Conservative or otherwise. Um, uh, David Lamy, our Shadow Foreign Secretary, was in. Um, uh, Palestine and uh, Israel this week. He's been in Egypt, he's been in Jordan, he's been in Qatar, trying to pull together what influence we might have, albeit small, in the region. So I think the difference here is, is, is just about trying to get over the line the possible, whereas, of course, we all agree on one thing, and that's we want this to end, and we want it to end yesterday. Um, but that is not necessarily possible. Understood, yeah. And thank you for the clarity on that. It's really helpful. Just a final one for me on this. Um, and actually, this is via A.M. McJ on Twitter, who asks, were Labour MSPs playing games in their voting and in all of this? And that's an interesting question, because whatever the answer to that, and you can, you can answer that. But even to ask that suggests there's a perception of politicians kind of messing around a bit on this really important issue. Do you accept that there's a weird perception there? Well, I mean, I don't accept that perception. And if any politician anywhere, whether it be the Scottish Parliament, the UK Parliament, anywhere else, anywhere else in the world wants to play politics with this severe issue, then they, they should be 
they should decide to go and do something else for a living, to be honest, because we shouldn't be playing politics with this. It is hugely important. And really, when you, do, when you, when you, when you distill it all down, Callum, there's nothing between uh, any of the political parties on this. I mean, I think it was ill-advised of the Prime Minister to go to Israel, wrap his arms around Netanyahu and say, we want you to win. I thought that was ill-advised. Um, but in actual fact, whether you're a Conservative MSP in the Scottish Parliament um, voting against the motion last night or whether or not you're a Labour MP at the UK Parliament not voting for the SNP motion last week but voting for our own motion, we all want the same thing. And actually, I think it would be grown-up politics if we all came together to get that same thing rather than us all arguing about the semantics of motions that actually won't really make any difference anyway. Um, we're all uh, hopeful that the events of the last 24 hours might get us somewhere on the process back to peace. Um, I, it's been an interesting uh, week or so um, on this particular debate, north and south of the border. I think ultimately what we need to remember here and what Labour MPs and MSPs need to remember here um and Ian himself said, you know, it's the Labour's a government in waiting, and, and most likely that's correct. Keir Starmer is most likely in the next 12 months going to be the Prime Minister of a country which has a lot of history in that part of the world um, and which has an important role to play in that part of the world over the next little while. So what he says matters. And Keir Starmer cannot put platitudes and virtue signalling ahead of actual leadership, not least because it's not been so long ago that he's had to work incredibly hard to repair the relationship with the Jewish community in this country. The notion of a ceasefire, and I said this in either last week's podcast or the one before, legitimizes Hamas because it tacitly suggests that Hamas is a rational actor as Israel is, and it isn't. It's not. A ceasefire takes place when two sides agree to it, and that is not going to happen. They'll agree to a prisoner exchange, which is what's happening right now, but there's not going to be a ceasefire because Hamas is not capable of entering into a ceasefire. And when you therefore distill that down, what Keir Starmer is asking for in a humanitarian pause is actually exactly the same as what people advocating a ceasefire are asking for, which is basically for Israel to dial it down a bit and go in a little softer than it is given the collateral damage that it is imposing. And so what I think Labour shadow ministers in Westminster have done and what I think Labour MSPs have done is pointlessly damaged their own party and pointlessly made life difficult for their leaders, all to satisfy their ability to say on Twitter or in a reply to an email in their inbox that they're backing a ceasefire because it sounds like a nice thing to do. That's not leadership, though. Leadership is standing up and saying, no, I'm not calling for a ceasefire, and here's why I'm not calling for a ceasefire. And I have to say, I've been really impressed with Keir Starmer that he has not flinched on this issue at all. He has explained why he's not called, not just saying he's not going to call for a ceasefire, but he's very clearly articulated why he's not calling for a ceasefire. And he's right. And I think in the cold light of day, those MPs who have now found themselves out of a job a year before they were probably going to be in government, will reflect upon this and say to themselves, what the hell did I do that for? And can I just pick up a little bit what you said there, Andy, because that's really important. This last week, in the last 10 days, probably the last two weeks, has been the toughest I've ever had in politics. And it's been tough because the pressure to come out and say ceasefire has been huge. And the reason we haven't is because, A, 
it, it wouldn't mean anything. And B, there's been a process towards that that's been already in train. And I think Andy raises some really good point there in terms of Keir Starmer's position because there's a real uh, contradictory position that Keir's in at the moment. He runs; He's essentially leader of the opposition of a relatively small party in historic terms, given our worst election results in 1935. So very, very little influence and power on the one hand. And on the other hand, is seen as the de facto prime minister. And that also gives added pressure. So you've got no power, you've got no influence, but you're looked upon to have that power and influence despite you not having it. So there's a real contradiction there too that's really difficult to navigate through. And the bottom line is, and Keir's driven by this and everything he does, he's just trying to do the right thing. And that might be not please some people, um, it might not please the protesters, it might not please the people who are campaigning outside my office or delivering leaflets or vandalising my windows or terrorising my staff. Um, it might not be uh, pleasing the people who are meaning that I have to do my surgeries in supermarkets with police these days. That might not be pleasing them. And I understand their frustrations, but actually we all want to get to the same destination here, and that's the end to these hostilities. And what we're trying to do is back the only thing that's on the table. And that thing that's on the table looks as if it might come to fruition in the next 24 hours, which would be a great step forward. Gosh, Ian, I just feel like we shouldn't brush over what you've just said about this being the toughest couple of weeks that you've experienced in politics. And then the difficulties that you've outlined there for you and for your staff over these last couple of weeks as well. That is a huge burden to have been bearing these last couple of weeks. Well, I mean, it should be tough, though, Callum. I mean, um, it's not a violin thing. This should be tough. Not, these things not van- are not vandalising really, your office, though, or terrorising. Yeah, these are your staff, really, really you know. difficult things. But it has given rise to some people who wish to either feel so passionate about this issue they're lashing out at the Labour Party, um, or whether or not um, there's a way through this, and we should all be working together to get to get to that way through. So, you know, for the first time in my entire political career, even after the murder of Joe Cox and, and David Amos. Um, I refused to take uh, um, protection. Um, but this weekend, we just had no choice because the police were saying you either take it or you stay at home. So there's a real problem here. And we need to get people to dial down the rhetoric. We need to get people to calm down a bit and need to get people to see this for what it is. And this is a generational conflict in the Middle East that nobody can really resolve. But we're all trying to do a little bit to get there to resolve it. And I just do wonder why the target has been the Labour Party in this and not the actual government of the actual country that can actually do something about it. And that's maybe a much wider discussion that might take a lot longer than this particular single podcast. But that is a really big issue we have to deal with. And I was talking to a colleague who I won't mention their name yesterday, who was doing some work in a new area of constituency that will come in after the boundary changes at the next election. And the Labour councillors in that new patch have been absolutely vilified and uh, they've received tens of thousands of bits of correspondence. Um, the, the pressure being put on them to call for a ceasefire has been immense. And the four Tory councillors in that particular area have not even had a phone call or an email. And they are the representatives of the actual government that can actually do something about it. So there is a wider discussion here about where our politics is going in this country. Um, and I think it's a very, very serious thing that we should all look at and wonder whether or not what is actually happening in the Middle East is a, a symptom of the overall geopolitics of the entire world, um, Trumpism, populism, etc., and, and how we can possibly get to a position where people are accepting of each other's positions, even if you disagree with them. Just to reflect on what you just said there, Ian, this wasn't going to be my question, but I think you mentioned dialing down the rhetoric, and I think that would be hugely welcome. I mean, my view on this is I think there's a lot of people uh, the public out just now that are, are are quite confused by it. I know I'm one of those people. 
Um, but but one thing they're not confused about is that they see just a huge human tragedy unfolding uh, before them on, on both sides. And um, uh, and and I, I just it would be very helpful if that rhetoric could be dialed down to that to allow a lot more constructive discourse to take place so that people can make up their minds without feeling that they're being pushed into a certain extreme. Um, and I feel that that's uh, what we're at risk of just now. Um, I wanted to, to, to bring it back, though, Ian, just, just to Scotland. Um, and it's linked to this issue, but but it, it's a bit of a segue into, into a wider issue. So Martin Geisler, a BBC journalist, was interviewing Anna Sarwar on Sunday and asked the question repeatedly, if, uh, if you were in Parliament in Westminster with Keir Starmer last week, how would you have voted? And, you know, Anna, I think he would even admit, said he got a, a tough time on that interview and it was a, a difficult one for him to navigate. And, and what it really brought back to me is, uh, is a conversation that we had with Jack McConnell on this podcast um, and, and my view that one of the biggest things the SNP saw in the run-up to 2007 was that, uh, that Scottish Labour were, were playing very much second fiddle to what was going on at Westminster. There wasn't really an independence of a party uh, north of the border. And it's something that the SNP did seize upon a lot um, in the run-up to 2007. And I'm really interested to understand your views on on the relationship between Scottish Labour and uh, UK Labour going forward. And how do you view your role in that? Because clearly you're the solitary or were the solitary Labour MP. Now you've been added by um, your colleague at uh, Brother Glenn. But how do you view that relationship? How important is for you politically? Um, because I think the SNP will be trying to seize that opportunity again if they see any kind of sense that the, the party north of the border is going to be undermined. I mean, the reality of the situation, Jeff, and it's a great question, is that uh, the Scottish and UK Labour parties have never worked so closely together. The relationship between Kieran and Ass is as close as any UK Labour and Scottish leader have ever had. Um, by a considerable amount. They, they don't just get on professionally and agree professionally, but they get on as individuals on a, on a friendship basis. And that's really important to make it work. But also, I don't think as a party, as a Labour Party, we make enough of the fact that devolution should mean that people should have different ideas and different positions on things. Um, and if they didn't, I would fully have expected your question to be, doesn't it seem a bit strange that everyone speaks with one voice? What's the point in having devolution if you can't even make your a different mindset for the Scottish context. So, you know, on both sides of these things work, I could slightly cheekily throw back that, you know, I'm 110% sure that the Scottish SNP group and the Westminster SNP group are not singing from the same hymn sheet. In fact, I'm not even sure they're singing from the same, they're in the same church at the moment. So, you know, these, these things these things do raise their head when you have big issues like this one this week. But the bottom line is that the only difference between the UK and Scottish position was that the, the Scottish party wanted to go all out for the saying for the ceasefire and the UK party said that they would rather um, go down the route of what was the possible. There was no falling out about that. I suspect if Anas was in here at Westminster as an MP last week, he would probably have uh, voted the same way as the rest of us in terms of our own motion because that's essentially the strategy that he put forward uh, yesterday in the Scottish Parliament. They put forward an amendment to the SNP motion and they voted for that amendment and then they accepted the amended motion uh, when it came to the vote. So they would have done exactly the same thing, I would have thought, down here. There's been lots of discussions, debates, phone calls, chats, 
uh, ideas put forward. Um, and ultimately, I think we ended up getting to the right position. And I think Anas has probably ended up getting to the right position as well because he's, in his own right, as the party leader in Scotland, but also as the Scottish Labour Party, entitled to a different opinion, albeit how big or how small, and on a whole host of issues. Yeah, Tutushi there, uh, Ian. Uh, well, well, welcome back on my my point. I suppose my um, let's just tease that out a bit into practical terms then. And and we, I mentioned the McConnell um, podcast, um, but a number of our guests have have talked about the the different migration needs for Scotland. We need to attract um, more working age population. And we've all seen the figures, which are pretty alarming. So let's just put this into practice. If, um, can you see a circumstance where Scottish Labour, which you're part of, um, would put forward um, what Jack McConnell did, the Fresh Start Initiative, something along those lines, there is a precedent that said we need to have um, some immigration powers um, uh, devolved to Scotland, or at least a, a pilot programme um, uh, supported by the Home Office. Uh, is that something that we would expect to see at the next election, do you think? Uh, yeah, and actually we've been talking about that already, because if you look at the the Brown Commission on the future of the UK, what it, essentially the principles behind that are that the UK keeps the framework for various uh, issues and items of public policy, and if the Scottish Parliament have a different viewpoint or they want to build upon it or they have a different um, problem to resolve, then they're able to do that. So I think it would beefing up Scotland's involvement in the Migration Advisory Committee would be part of that. And looking at sectors uh, rather than geographical areas of where you require potentially more people. Yes, it's it's a specific issue for Scotland, but it's also an issue for other regional parts of England as well. Um, If you look at the South West, for example, they have very similar uh, tourism issues in the highlands of Scotland. So this isn't necessarily a Scottish-specific issue. It's essentially a governance of the whole UK issue, and the Brown Report sets that out quite clearly. And those discussions between ANAS, Yvette Cooper's or Shadow Home Secretary and others are happening all the time. Um, But what I don't want to do and what none of us want to do is to get into a debate in the run-up to the next election about a menu of uh, powers and you just tick them off about whether or not you're going to devolve or not devolve because I think that misses the point. Workers' rights being the prime example of the one that's been uh, talked about recently where I mean, our position is that the UK will set a new deal for working people which will be the largest um, change, positive change in workers' rights in generations and then if Scotland wishes to go beyond that then they should be perfectly entitled to do so. Um, and that's the way the EU works in terms of its subsidiarity principles. And I think it's a perfectly reasonable way to work in terms of the way the, the future of the UK constitutional settlement works. It's very interesting. Uh, I think this is an interesting section of the podcast, actually, because, Ian, we, we put out that you were coming on today, uh, just this morning, in fact, and a few people have replied with questions for you. So let's whiz through some of these, shall we? Um, under the kind of constitutional and devolution umbrella. Uh, so Thomas on Twitter asks, what is the legitimate route to independence? Well, the legitimate route to independence has been the the, the trodden path that's happened already. It's an agreement between both governments to allow a referendum to happen as is set out in the legislation. Um, I suppose the issue is how do you get to that pathway? And, you know, the First Minister and former First Minister have laid out a plethora of different avenues so far. What I don't think it is is the largest number of MPs at the next general election. I don't think it's de facto referendas. I think you need to treat the public with much more respect than that. Um, I think Nicola Sturgeon used to say it was a 60% consistency in the polls. It's very difficult to determine what might be um, 
the rule of thumb in all of these things, but it's all set out in legislation, and that legislation must work because it worked in 2014 when we got to that point. Um, who knows what it'll be in the future, if there will be one in the future, but, you know, um, I think we'll all know when it comes along. Yeah. I, um, I, uh, I, you know, hate to say this, but I agree with you on... The, the SNP's so far plans for, for the, the Westminster election, I think it's confusing at best, and, and I just don't think it stands up to any real credible test. However, I do want to ask you one direct question. Um, Ian, we know how the, the first referendum came about. It came about by a majority in the Scottish Parliament. Uh, so if there is a pro-independence majority um, uh, in the Scottish Parliament in 2026, would a Labour government back and agree to a referendum? I mean, I'm, I'm not dodging the question, Jeff, but I don't think that's an easy question to answer because the circumstances in 2011 were completely different in terms of it being the SNP got a majority solely on that basis after being in power for 2007. Now, many pollsters and political pundits and political experts would debate what the process actually was, but if you think about the major votes that happened in 2011, the biggest driver for that was that the Scottish government at that time, run by Alex Salmon, was seen as being competent and therefore deserved the opportunity to be continue to be competent. So it depends on a whole host of circumstances, but I'm not quite so sure you can extrapolate and just lift 2011 onto 2026, 15 years later, and then suggest that the circumstances are the same. So I think by the time we get to 2026, um, hopefully after two years of a UK Labour government, we'll be in a better position to show the UK can be positive for Scotland and Scotland can be positive for the UK and we can go forward with a devolution settlement that's modernised, continues to develop um, for the benefit of uh, everyone that lives across the whole of the UK. So I I think the circumstances in 2026 will be much, much, much different from 2011. Um, I mean, 15 minutes is a long time in politics at the moment, let alone 15 years. So (laughs) I think there's a different set of circumstances. Uh, a couple more. We will come back to powers, Andy, in just a sec. I want to ask you this, though. Sorry, Andy. From just just to just to get through, because it's nice to have people asking questions on Twitter. So very quickly, uh, Maida says, in the event of Scotland voting for independence, would Ian Murray stand to be an MSP at Holyrood? Oh my goodness! If my uh, auntie had wheels, she'd be a bike. Uh, who knows? Who knows? You know. Um, it's, uh, I, I mean, I don't. This it seems like a long way off. I'll probably be retired by then. I would have thought. But uh, you know, I've got yeah, no, fair enough. I've got no aspirations to do anything other than the job I'm doing at the moment. <laughs> right, Andy, go for it. Remember, Daniel Johnson listens to the podcast, so be careful. Well, well, Daniel Johnson would um, feel to be a bike there in that sense. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> um, on, uh, just off Daniel Johnson for the moment and on to something else. Um, so I, I have a simpler view, I think, of the issue of mandates and so on. I think there was a mandate in 2021 for a referendum. I don't think there was in 2016. It was too bully. It was all predicated on Brexit and ifs and buts. I think there was a clear mandate in 2021 um, in the manifestos of the SNP and the Green Party. Um, And I think the election was almost a single-issue election about that, and they won. And so it is my view that there should have been a referendum because it's my view they had a mandate. And people often say to me, well, what what about NDREF 3 and 4 and 5? And I would say the same thing to that, which is that there should be NDREF 23, 24 and 25 
if there's a mandate for it. And the way to stop referendums is to stop people voting for nationalist parties. That's ultimately the way to do it. So when Tories moan at me for saying there's a mandate for a referendum, I simply say to them, well, why don't, you know, why isn't anybody voting for you? Um, that's a very long podcast, that question. Uh, but that's ultimately the situation. Stop voting for nationalist parties if you don't want referendums. That's the answer to that. Now, um, I am a believer in more powers for the Scottish Parliament. I don't think the Parliament has enough powers. Uh, I think there are a variety of tax powers and other legislative powers that should be devolved to the Scottish Parliament that would make it as powerful as other Anglo-Saxon sub-state parliaments in Canada, US, Australia, and so on. Um, however, I also accept that the reputation of the Scottish Parliament is very, very poor just now. It's very low. Um, and there is undoubtedly a perception out there that the Parliament is not really dealing very well with the powers it's got, and therefore the last thing we'd want to do is give them any more. So I do think there is a lot of merit in uh, whichever government is formed after 2026, whether it's another SNP government or a Labour government, in actually more competently and credibly using the powers that we have now first. But powers are not just there to be transferred from Westminster to Holyrood. Holyrood has been, or the Scottish government, uh, has been a very centralising government. And there is also, I think, a very healthy discussion to be had about powers moving down to a more local and regional level. And I suppose what I would say to Ian here is that Labour has an important role. Um, certainly in our lifetimes, Labour has a very important role as, for want of a better term, the middle option party the party which gives uh, Scottish people something outside of the polar opposites, which are an offer from the Tories and the SNP, and actually gives them what they want. And I think what Scottish people want is a something in the middle option rather than what they're being offered right now. And I think that is a very important place for Labour to be and start to think about directly elected mayors, more power for local authorities, potentially a reorganisation of local government, which is not working at all. Local government is a waste of time because it just takes its lead from central government and from the central parties. And I think the other thing I would urge Ian to remember, as well as Labour's role there, is that most of Labour's increased vote share over the last year is not coming from the SNP. There's some coming from the SNP. There are some soft nationalists who are now polling for Labour. But most of Labour's increase is coming from the Tories. It's coming from people who were voting Tory because they thought they were the surest bet on the union and now see Keir Starmer potentially walking into Downing Street and no longer think the Tories are the safest bet on the union. So they've just simply transferred their vote straight back to Labour. That isn't enough for Labour to win. It's not enough for Labour to win. And I would just urge Labour to... Um, there's a lot of emotional scarring with some Labour people about the referendum, what came after, and all of that. But sometimes I think they behave too much like Tories. Sometimes I think they have to remember to behave like Labour people, not like Tories. And that doesn't always mean saying no, because you think that saying no beats the SNP. Sometimes it means saying, how do we actually make the union attractive rather than making independence unattractive? Yeah. And, just and, that, and, that, and that's what we're doing. Ian, sorry to interrupt. Before you come in there, um, that was a wonderful keynote address, Andy. Really, really <laughs> quite something. Um, never again will you criticise me for long questions. Sorry, Ian, I interrupted you. 
I know. I, I, I mean, to a certain extent, uh, Jeff, I, I agree it was a long keynote, but also um, <laughs> Andy also mentioned all the stuff we're actually doing at the moment. I mean, the the the, the whole the whole task of the next uh, year or six months, whatever the general election will be, is to answer the question: If it's not going to be them, why is it going to be you? And what's in it for Scotland? And that's essentially what we want to try and do. So the key period of time to answer Andy's um, challenges is between 24 and 26 to show that the UK Labour government can be a force for good in Scotland and vice versa, that people can see that politics can uh, be different and that, that parliaments can work together for the benefit of policy and the benefit of of the people in which should live here. And and if you add all that together, the, um, you then look at you know constitutional change, which will be a major part of the next Labour government as well. So, yes, it all comes together off that. We still fundamentally believe in devolution, um, and that doesn't just mean Scotland, it also means the regions of England, which I think is the largest thing to, for the next Labour government to crack, that's the English problem. It's the Andy Burnham problem more than it is the Hamza Yusuf problem, if you, if you put it that way. And then Andy is right, double devolution. I mean, uh, my view is that local government has just become the unfunded administrative arm of the Scottish government and it doesn't really work at the moment and we have to reignite that and try and get double devolution back out to local communities so they can make decisions for themselves. That's the same argument in the Greater Manchester as it is in St Ives. So all of that stuff has to be part of a, a bigger constitutional settlement. But the bottom line here is that most of the Scottish public at this moment in time don't think that both governments and both parliaments and the institutions work for them. And it'd be it's incumbent on us as a Labour Party who believe in this stuff to show that it can work, it can be different and it can be changed. And all of that change isn't a menu of powers to send up on the train or the, a flight to Edinburgh. These are... Uh, fundamental cultural and institutional changes that have to happen. Because I think you're right, this isn't about defeating nationalism. This is about showing that the union can work. What's it like, Ian, being um, in opposition at Westminster and having this sort of sense of purpose that there is about the Labour Party in this sort of six months or a year, but for such a long time you were the kind of the sole voice as a Scottish Labour MP, and now you're one of two. Does it feel like you were a, a kind of... I don't know, are you part of a big cohort with the kind of the Scottish MPs at large? Or do you feel that you're part of the Labour opposition? I know you're Shadow Secretary of State for Scotland as well. So you're kind of, you know, you're kind of in the shadow cabinet there. I'm just trying to understand what it's like being in Parliament when those are the numbers. I mean, it's got advantages and disadvantages. I, I do uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek say that, you know, when people ask what is it like to, and what is it, has it been like to be on your own for so long, is that I, I got a, on a flight and sat next to one of my former MP colleagues and it just reaffirmed to me why it's always nice to be on your own sometimes. So, you know, it's not always, it's not all bad news. Um, so, but, yeah, I mean, being, being the lone... Who, who was that, Ian? Sorry, I didn't catch, I didn't catch, didn't catch the name, name there. Let me give you the name, you the name again. It was... <laughs> Let me just say, I couldn't have been more bored by the time I got off that flight than if I tried. I think I was trying my shoelace and the tarmac so they could get ahead of me. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but essentially, though, it's, it's allowed us to be A, nimble, uh, but B, you know, it's, mm. it's not been difficult to persuade the current Shadow Cabinet in Keir uh, that Scotland is the pathway to Downing Street and the most important thing for him to do. And he, he gets that. The Shadow Cabinet get it. I think Rutherglen, in terms of the by-election, was really part of the culmination of the work that we've done in terms of uh, getting Scotland to the heart of UK Labour thinking, which has really worked. Um, and I'm just looking forward now to that come together. So uh, what, what am I part of? Uh, um, the UK Labour Party here has been great. So that's the... Uh, 
the bell going for the start of play. Um, so, so it's been really good to be part of that, you know, Labour family uh, here. Um, and you know, we have we have friends across the aisle. You know, I've got I've got yellow friends and I've got blue friends uh, as well. Uh, that, 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 no, we don't share much politically, but it's always nice to see people around. And I've got a certain affinity with David Mundell, of course, because he's done this himself. Um, but you know, come the next election, how many colleagues will I have? Well, that's up to the voters. But I'm I'm hoping we'll have a few more. It's, it's worth saying that today is Autumn Statement Day, Ian. So is that the bell to kick off the PMQs and Autumn Statement next couple of hours? Uh, yeah, that's the bell that kicks off prayers this morning. Northern Ireland questions, then PMQs, then the autumn statement. Got you. Right, I, I, you're obviously pushed for time, uh, uh, Ian, and um, really grateful for your time. I want to just touch on something that you were very personally involved with um, in 2013. I think it was you took over or you spearheaded the Foundation for Hearts, um, which at the time um, uh, that great football club was in real risk of... Um, going under and um, perhaps it's one of the reasons that you had the profile which allowed you to kind of resist the SNP surge um, in 2015 and so more power to your elbow for the work that you did there I know it was hugely appreciated from across the political divide from fans of the club but my question is more about one that we've been raised on Twitter today and I think given that I've just paid tribute to you with some honesty could you pay tribute to me with some honesty <laughs> by just accepting that Aberdeen Football Club are a bigger and better club than Heart of Midlothian? Well, you know, that's very kind of you, Jeff, to have given those nice words. I actually have on my desk here, you know, a heart shirt, um, which I've been trying desperately to, to, to give to the winner of a raffle prize for some time. But um, all I could say, and you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't expect me to uh, say anything other than this, but, you know, if anybody wants to know about the process of what went through at Hearts and how we saved the club from... Uh, liquidation and how it's now the largest fan-owned club in the United Kingdom and how it's the third strongest and best club and best supported club and most successful club in Scotland, then my book, you know, my, my book, How the Fans Kept Their Hearts Beating, is available at all pretty poor bookshops and all second-hand bookshops and maybe the odd charity shop, I would have thought. And if you can... And does, and does, that, does that book include the, 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 the two European trophies that you won? No, it doesn't. Sorry, that's Aberdeen again. Sorry, I. I, uh, you know, <laughs> I, don't know. I, I know you're a. I know you're such an avid fan, Jeff, that you even changed your surname to support your club and spelt it wrong. <laughs> you should take the vowels out, and maybe that'd be even better. But you know, I, I, I wish Aberdeen all the all the best in Europe and hope that they do well. But you know, the third. Everybody knows the third best club in Scotland, the Parson, always will be. And to suggest otherwise just really dampens your your already wonderful reputation. Just when I thought you were a credible person in politician as well. <laughs> we have a terrible habit on this podcast of obsessing guests or potential guests, Ian, but we're very we're very grateful for your time. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. Really good to speak to you. My pleasure. All the best.